in 2019, there was a study done. It was a partnership between three organizations, Lifeway Research, Bible Gateway, which is a website that has free Bible translations, free Bible study resources, and YouVersion, which is the world's most popular Bible app for your phone. Those three companies work together, and they work together to come up with the most popular Bible verses for the year in 2019. They were looking for what verses did people search for, what did they look for on Google, what did they pull up on these websites or these apps, what did they mark, what did they highlight, what did they share on social media, all that kind of stuff. These were the top five as they reported them. Number five, uh, Romans 8:28. we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. Uh, Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And I put an asterisk there to say to you, if you expand the top five to the top ten, five of the top ten were five of the six verses in Psalm 23. So basically all of Psalm 23 made the top ten of the most searched for, most shared Bible verses. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you. And then number one, year after year after year when these sorts of studies have been done is John 3.16. John 3.16 is familiar to most of us, many of us. We see it on... Baseball games with somebody sitting out in right field holding up a poster board that says John 3.16 on it. You see it driving down the highway. There's a billboard and it's got plastered up on the, on the board, either the verse or maybe just the reference, John 3.16. You see it on a football player like Tim Tebow who used to write John 3.16 on the eye black that he wore before football games. This is a verse that is very, very familiar to many people in the United States. In light of how familiar we are with this verse, it's interesting that Bible scholars have a friendly intramural debate about who actually said these words. This is the first point on your notes. Bible translators don't agree about where Jesus' words end and John's commentary begins. You understand in ancient Greek there were no question marks. There were no punctuation marks. There were no quotation marks. So usually when you're reading ancient Greek, you just sort of get a feel and a sense of when the author is reporting speech or asking a question or whatever may be happening in the text. There's no question marks. There's no punctuation. There's no quotation marks in the original language. What Bible translators have done in the Gospels is they have put the words of Jesus in red. So that with just a glance at the page, you can say, oh, red words, those are Jesus' words. But in the original, there are no quotation marks to tell them this is where the words of Jesus begin and end. And the question among Bible scholars is the transition from verse 15 to verse 16. Virtually all of the Bible scholars you will read say Jesus is talking up through verse 15 but then it's about an even split in those who say, yes, Jesus continues to talk on through verse 21, or those who say, no, Jesus' words stop in verse 15, and John, the author, begins to offer commentary in verse 16 down to verse 21. So there's two sides to this debate. I'm reading out of the ESV, our pew Bibles here at Emmanuel are the ESV. 
The ESV has verse 16 to 21 as red print. So those Bible scholars are saying, we think Jesus said these words all the way through verse 21. The greatest Greek scholar in all of Baptist church history is a man named A.T. Robertson. And A.T. Robertson and a whole bunch of other Greek scholars disagree. And they think that the words of Jesus actually end in verse 15 and that verse 16 to 21 are commentary on what Jesus has just said to Nicodemus. Now look, to me, if you like this sort of theological, biblical debate, this is an interesting question. It's not an important question. Interesting, yes. Important, no. It's not important because we believe that all of the Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And when we say that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, what we're saying is all of the words, the ones that they print in black and the ones that they print in red, they are all true words. They are all God's words. So whether Jesus said it and then John wrote it down, or whether Jesus said part of it and John wrote it down and then offered some commentary, what we believe about the Bible itself as Protestants, as Evangelicals, as Baptists, is that the Holy Spirit inspired all of these words. God breathed out all of these words. And whether the translators in English printed as red or black really is immaterial. The red words don't have more importance than the black words. All of these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and they are true. Now, there is one word I want to draw your attention to. It's the very first word in John 3.16. In English, it's a three-letter word, F-O-R, for. That word, for, regardless of who said it or wrote it, ties our passage back back to the conversation Jesus just had with Nicodemus. And if you were here on Wednesday night, you know, or if you listened online, you know that the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus is tied to the story right before it. So let's just remind ourselves of the context here. Today, this Sunday, is Palm Sunday. Christians around the world celebrate and remember that on Palm Sunday, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. He rode into Jerusalem for the very last time before he died. What we read about in John 2 and 3 is not Palm Sunday. It's not the triumphal entry, but it's a very similar story that happened three years earlier. Jesus traveled to Jerusalem with a small group of his disciples, and they were there to celebrate the Passover. So they went to Jerusalem, they got to town, they went almost immediately to the uh, temple precincts, the temple complex, and when they got there, Jesus was outraged. He was furious. He was literally fighting mad that there were so many people buying and selling and trading and making a commotion in the place that was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer. And so John tells us, John chapter 2, Jesus made a whip And he drove those who were buying and selling out of the temple complex. He forced them to leave. He chased them out. The men in charge of the temple complex were out of their mind furious. They were outraged. They were making money off of that whole racket. And so they cornered Jesus in the temple area and they said to him, my paraphrase, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to come in here and do something like that? Who gave you the authority to come in here and run these people off? And they said to Jesus, if you're going to do a thing like that, we need you to do a sign. A sign. Now we'll see in just a minute that Jesus had been performing signs publicly. People knew about them. But they put Jesus on the spot and they say, we demand that you perform a sign. Prove to us that you have the right to run these folks out of the temple. And you know what Jesus said? Okay. He usually didn't say that when people asked for a sign. But he said, okay. He said, here's your sign. Tear this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they look at each other, and they're completely bewildered. And they say, this guy has lost his marbles. He's off his rocker. He's nuts. He's crazy. Does he know how long it took to build this building? And John says that Jesus really wasn't talking about the temple building. He was talking about the temple of his body. And he was looking several years into the future and he was saying, look, if you kill me, I will raise from the dead three days later. That's your sign. It's the penultimate sign that the gospel of John is driving to, even in these early chapters, that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Now, that night, the Jewish leaders sent someone to talk to Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. If you look at John chapter 3, Verse 1, it says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2 says he came at night. Lots of speculation about why he came at night, but he came at night. And he says to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. See, he knew that Jesus had been performing signs. Putting Jesus on the spot and demanding a sign was just spiritual manipulation. They knew what Jesus had been doing. We know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus completely disregards what Nicodemus says, and he cuts right to the chase, and he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. He didn't want to talk about the signs. He wanted to talk about the kingdom of God. So he said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, the only way that you can be born again is if the Son of Man, this is all in John 3, 1 to 15, if the Son of Man is lifted up on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners, Nicodemus, the only way that you can be born again is if the Holy Spirit of God blows on you like the wind and causes you to be born anew, born from above, unless the accomplished work of the Son is applied by the Spirit, Nicodemus, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. There's no hope. Nicodemus' response is in verse 9, John 3, verse 9. He says, how can these things be? And in what follows, we have an explanation of how these things can be. How is it that sinful people can see the kingdom of God because Jesus the Son was lifted up on a cross because the Holy Spirit of God causes us to be born again? How in the world is it that all of those things could be true? Our passage gives the answer. The big idea is very simple. I just gave it to you on your notes. 
It's straight out of the Bible. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'll be honest with you. I think it's hard for most of us to really hear that verse. I think it's hard for most of us to really feel the weight and the magnitude of that verse. And I think there's several reasons for that. One reason is that we take John 3.16, we pluck it out, we forget the conversation with Nicodemus before it, we forget verse 16, or excuse me, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and we just read John 3.16. We ignore the broader context. So we don't hear the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here, of what John is saying here. I think a second reason it's hard for us to hear the magnitude of this verse is just familiarity. We are so familiar with this verse. Many of you would say that is the very first Bible verse I ever memorized as a kid. John 3.16. We have heard it over and over and over and over and over again. It is so familiar to us that the magnitude of it has sort of lost some of its power, some of its impact. Let me give you an example. I could give you lots of examples of this, but I'm going to put a picture on the screen, and I'm going to ask you, do any of you know the name of that photograph? That photograph, if you're a Kansas Jayhawk fan, you know, is called The Shot. The Shot. The year was 2008. Kansas was playing Memphis in the national championship game. They were down nine points with less than two minutes to go in the game, and they came storming back. Defensive plays, offensive plays, it was an amazing last couple of minutes. And this is the very last play of regulation. Mario Chalmers shot a three-point shot as the buzzer expired. It went in, it tied the game with no time left on the clock, and Kansas and Memphis went into overtime, and Kansas won the national championship. And Kansas fans look back on this, and they say, that's the shot. The one that saved the game and sent it into overtime when we won. I can tell you exactly where I was when I watched this shot. Frankfort, Kentucky, sitting in my living room, holding Emma, my only kid at that time, who was two years old. She was sound asleep. And if you have a two-year-old who's sound asleep, you know you make no noise. And you do not wake them up. And so I sat in the recliner, and I held her with one hand, and I pumped the air with the other hand, and I said lots of things in a whisper, and I was so excited. It had an incredible impact on me. Now, I'll be honest. Since 2008, I've seen this picture, and I've watched the last play of this game probably a thousand times. I've seen it over and over and over and over and over again. So when I see it, it doesn't really do anything emotionally for me. I'm so familiar with it, it's a little bit old news. But let's talk new news. There was a basketball game this week, and this is a screenshot from that game. It was Monday night. Kansas was playing North Carolina at halftime of the national championship game. They were down an unsurmountable amount of points. Everyone thought it was over. Half of you were texting me, making fun of me, mocking me, teasing me, asking me, are you watching the game? Yes, I'm watching the game. And then they played the second half, and they came roaring back, and they came fighting back. Good offense, good defense. 
This was the game ceiling shot from David McCormick, a guy who's had an up and down career and some people have hated him and some people love him and he hit the game ceiling shot. And I'll be honest with you, this one's still fresh. So when I turn around and look at it, I get a little lump in my throat. I get a little, I get butterflies. I think, oh, that's still good stuff. And I haven't watched this play, I haven't watched the second half of this game a thousand times. I've only watched it a couple dozen times over the last week. But when something's familiar to you, it kind of loses its edge. When it's new to you, it's more powerful. And what I'm saying to you is John 3.16 is pretty familiar to most of us. We've just heard it over and over and over and over again on repeat. And at some point, you've heard it so many times that it sort of starts to lose the significance of what is actually being said. So, why do we have a, a, a hard time? Why do we have trouble hearing this verse? Number one, we ignore the context. We just pluck one verse out. Number two, we're so familiar with it. Number three, in all seriousness, our experiences growing up, I think, shape the way that we hear this verse. Some of you grew up in a home where you rarely, if ever, heard the words, I love you. You just didn't hear that a lot in your home. And so when you come to this verse in the Bible and it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you kind of have a hard time believing that that's true. You kind of have ingrained in your heart and your mind and your psyche, that's too good to be true. How, how, could that, how could that be true? Where's the fine print? Where's the catch? Where's the disclaimer? Where's the waiver that I'm going to be asked to sign? It can't be true that he just did this because he loved the world. Others of you say, I didn't grow up in a home like that. Others of you say, I grew up in a home where I had doting parents and grandparents, and they told me they loved me all the time. I got so sick of hearing it. They just said it all the time, over and over and over again. And guess what? You might have grown up thinking that you are a very lovable person. You might have grown up thinking, well, of course God would love me. Everybody loves me. I'm the, I'm the most lovable. Who wouldn't love me? What's not to love? And regardless of what your experience was growing up, I think we just have a hard time hearing this. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to take your Bible and to look at it. It's not going to be on the screen. We're not going to say it by memory, but I just want you to look at what the Bible says in John 3.16. It says that God, that's the creator, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent ruler of the universe, God, so loved the world. He had so much love for the world. That word world is important. It tells you that God's love was not just directed towards one nation, one ethnicity, one skin color, one language group, one family. It was for the world. But it also tells you that it was for sinners. Because if you've read the New Testament, you know that that word world doesn't just describe the globe, the earth. It doesn't just describe the people who live on the earth. It describes fallen, rebellious humanity standing in defiance to God. It's a word with a negative connotation. 
And what the Bible says is that God, the Creator, the Almighty One, the Holy One, the Judge, He loved the world to such a degree. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You understand that what we deserve is that word perish. Let me just remind you what the Bible says about the world. From beginning almost to the end. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. This is the fallout from Adam and Eve's sin before God destroyed the world with a flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a divine evaluation of mankind, the world, standing in defiance to the Creator. Great wickedness in all the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of our hearts were only evil continually. Now you say, look, that's Genesis 6-5, that's before the flood, that is a really long time ago. Well, look what the New Testament says. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, 10, and 11. Paul says, we've already charged that all, all, Jews and Greeks, that's everyone, you fall into one of those categories. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's the world. Great wickedness. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart, only evil continually. No one righteous, no not one, no one seeking for God. What about God? Well, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's talk about gospel truths from this passage, John 3.16 all the way down to verse 21. We have to start with the bad news. There is good news coming, but first we have to deal with the bad news. Apart from the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, four things are true. Number one, we're spiritually dead. You understand that what Jesus told Nicodemus is that the only way you can see the kingdom of God is if the Son of Man is lifted up and He accomplishes salvation for His people on the cross and if the Holy Spirit of God causes you to be born again. Apart from the work of God the Son and apart from work, the work of God the Holy Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And apart from those works, we are spiritually dead. We perish. Americans do not talk about sin much. When Americans do talk about sin, we talk about it in terms of something that makes us bad. And the Bible agrees with that. Sin does make us bad people. But there's something even worse than being a bad person. It's being a dead person. And the Bible says most basically, from the Garden of Eden all the way through the book of Revelation, sin is bad. But really, the biggest problem with sin is that it makes you dead, spiritually dead, unable to do anything to work your way back into a relationship with God. Secondly, apart from the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are condemned. We're condemned. Verse 17 says Jesus was not sent to condemn us, and verse 18 says 
we were already condemned. We're already condemned. Jesus didn't need to come and condemn us because by our sin, we condemned ourselves. That word condemned is a legal word. It would be found in a courtroom. It's the idea of a judge listening to all the evidence in a case. All the facts, all the accusations are brought, all the evidence is heard, and it's clear that the offending accused party is guilty, and the judge makes a declaration to that effect. Guilty. Condemned. That's us. Jesus didn't come to do that. That was already our condition apart from Jesus and apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives. Thirdly, apart from the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are evil. That's right there in verse 19. It's not very flattering, but it's what the text says. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's a word we really don't use a lot. If we don't talk about sin much, we really are slow as Americans to use the word evil, especially in the year 2022. Maybe we say people who hurt children are evil. Maybe we talk about mass shooters, mass murderers, and we say they're an evil person. Maybe we talk about a totalitarian dictator on the other side of the world, and we say that person is evil. But we're just pretty slow as a society to say something is evil. It's a strong word. It produces a strong reaction for most folks in our society, but it's what the Bible says about us apart from the work of Jesus and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We'd like to think that the problem is out there, evil is out there, and the Bible says, no, actually, that evil is in you. I've shared this story with you before. I heard it this week as I listened to a sermon on a podcast. In the early 1900s, the Times of London, a newspaper, ran a question in the editorial section, and they wanted responses. They were asking people to write in, and the question they asked was, what is wrong with the world? And there should be a question mark there. What is wrong with the world? They wanted people to write in, and all sorts of people wrote in, and all sorts of people had all sorts of different answers and theories and ideas. The one that we remember today came from a man named G.K. Chesterton, and Chesterton wrote this, Dear Sir, I am yours. G.K. Chesterton. He understood what we're talking about in John chapter 3. That what's wrong with the world and what's evil in the world isn't just some bad, dark, scary thing out there. But it's actually us. The light came into the world and people loved the darkness more than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Brings us to the last Truth, apart from the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, we love darkness. We just read verse 19. Most Bible scholars will tell you that everything you read in the Gospel of John is found in summary form in the first section of John's Gospel, the prologue, verse 1 to verse 18. And this is certainly true. If you just look at John chapter 1, verse 9, It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The light came into the darkness. He came to his own people, 
and they did not receive him. We just read that in John chapter 3. It's stated a little bit differently, but it's verse 19. The light came into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness. I don't know how a human being today could deny this truth that people love the darkness more than the light if you watch the news for five minutes or you scroll Facebook for ten minutes. That's us. I mean, it's not very flattering, and we'd like to say, man, that's, that's strong language. It is strong language, but it's true language. Apart from the work of Jesus and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we are dead, condemned, evil, and we love the darkness. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. There is good news. Good news starts with this. Jesus came to secure our salvation, not our condemnation. He did not come to condemn us, but He came to save us. Look at verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Admittedly, I've had sports on the brain this week, so let me give you one more sports analogy here. We've talked about winning, now let's talk about losing. The Dallas Cowboys. I love the Cowboys, but we're losers. That's what we do best. Just mired in mediocrity for the last couple of decades. 500 record, just average, just sort of right there in the middle. Sometimes you make the playoffs, sometimes you miss. You're always close, but you're never good enough. You know, at the end of this month, there's a draft. The NFL draft happens at the end of this month. And the Cowboys, like every other team, will have the opportunity to pick new players for their team. I hope they don't pick mediocre players. Because we got a bunch of them right now. I hope they don't pick average Decent players, because we got a roster full of them. We don't need any more of those guys. We need guys who can win and who can play and who can excel and who can be great. We don't need more mediocrity. That's what we already have. What the Bible is saying here is Jesus did not come to condemn people, they were already condemned. They're sinners. That's the world. That's all of us apart from the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Condemned, dead, loving the darkness, evil. That's us. We're already there. Jesus didn't come to do any of those things. He came to save us. That's a truth that I think is really easy for you to nod your head at on a Sunday morning and you fill in the blank correctly. You get the words spelled right and all that stuff. And then later this week, you forget it. That's a truth that it's easy to say, yes, Jesus came way back then to save us. And then it's something that many of us forget during the struggle of our day-to-day lives following Jesus. We forget that He came to save us, and we start to think, no, He's changed, and now He's ready to condemn me. There's a lot of people that struggle with this. Look, I'm like you, you're like me, people are people. We all tend to struggle with the same sorts of things. 
You look at the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them. There's some of them that you struggle with more or less, loving God, loving neighbor. We all sort of struggle with the same stuff, and we tend to struggle with the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And we get frustrated with ourselves. We're like the Apostle Paul saying, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do. I don't seem to be able to do the stuff I don't want to do, and I just need somebody to deliver me from this body of death. But in that struggle, what many of us start to think is, I think Jesus is sick of me. I think he is up in heaven rolling his eyes at me, crossing his arms, furrowing his brow, just angry and mad and disappointed and ready to be done with me, to condemn me. And if that's something that you wrestle with, I would just say, listen, Jesus came to secure our salvation, not our condemnation. We can handle the condemnation part on our own. Jesus came to save us. And he knew what that would cost in his death on the cross, the Son of Man being lifted up. He knew there would be a cost, and he endured it for the joy that was set before him, and he despised the shame of the cross. And he knew what the process of salvation would look like in your life. He understands how sanctification works. My goodness, if anyone understands how sanctification works, it's Jesus. And he knows that we're like Paul. We keep doing the things we don't want to do. We're not really able to do the things we really want to do. And we just sort of struggle along and peter along. And we don't feel like we're making a lot of progress. And if your idea is... Jesus has got to be so sick of me. He is probably ready to condemn me. You are thinking about, you are talking to, you are believing in an unbiblical Jesus. He did not come to condemn. He came to save. He died for your salvation and he sends the Holy Spirit to work salvation into your life. Not to condemn, but to save. Next, through Jesus God has provided a single way of salvation. It's right there in John 3.16 if you have ears to hear it. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. That's who he gave. He didn't give a committee. He didn't send a team. He didn't send a delegation. He didn't send a backup plan. This is not multiple choice where you look at the religious options that God has provided and you pick one from the list that suits you the best. God had love for the world and it moved him to send one person, God the Son, Jesus. That's who he sent. And as you read through this passage, verse 17 and verse 18, you understand what we are called to do is to believe in the name of the Son of God. Not to make up our own religious journey, but to believe in the only name that can save the name of Jesus Christ. This is not just a John 3, 16 to 21 truth. This is a Bible truth. You find it later in this gospel, John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless they come through him. 
You see it in the book of Acts when the apostles are preaching and they say, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You find Paul saying this same truth to young Timothy who was struggling as a pastor. And Paul says to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One. One mediator. One name given that has the power to save. One way, one truth, one life. It's not very popular today. It wasn't very popular in Jesus' day either, by the way. The Romans thought this was a preposterous idea. Only one God? Only one way of salvation? Pretty arrogant, you Christian people. It's the same thing you hear today. People hate this truth. It's what theologians call the exclusivity of the gospel, that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're in a burning building and the only way out is through a window, you can stand in the flames and pretend like you're too dignified to climb out a window, or you can get out the window. If you're on an airplane that goes down and the guy in the exit row has to pop the handle on the door and the big chute flies out, you can stand in the aisle and tell everyone that you'd rather walk across the jet bridge or you can jump out what's been provided. If you're skydiving and your chute won't go, you can feel really put out that you have to use the other hand to pull the emergency chute. Or you can just pull it. And when it comes to matters of eternity, life and death, salvation and perishing, you and I can sit around and complain that God has only provided a single way of salvation or we can be saved. Listen, when we take the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we're doing is we are thanking God that He has provided a single sure, certain way of salvation. We're not trying to second-guess God's plan of salvation for the world. We're not trying to say, God, why didn't you do it this way? Why didn't you do it that way? Why couldn't we have more choices? Why couldn't we have more options? We're just saying, God, thank you that you provided a way. God, we didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We'll never deserve it. But out of your love for us, you sent your only son, and he was lifted up on a cross to purchase a people for God. We're saying to God, thank you for sending Jesus. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. If you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate with us this morning. I'll ask you to take the elements that you've picked up, and you can open the side that has the bread, and I'm going to put a verse on the screen. It's from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24. It says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. can open the cup we'll read from the same passage just the next two verses in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Father, we're thankful that you have provided a a way for us to be saved. We thank you for the body of Christ that carried our sin and the blood of Christ that purchased his people. Amen. One last truth as we end. A person's faith in Jesus will be revealed in his or her actions. This is the end of our passage. John 3, verse 20 to 21. says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, usually we think about John 3.16 and we think John 3.16 tells us what God has done for us to change our eternity. We don't have to perish, but we can live. And that's certainly part of this passage. We're reading about what Jesus has done to save us from perishing, from condemnation, from death. And Jesus, in His death on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to life... There is certainly a change in our eternity. But what these last two verses are saying, and we're just talking about them quickly at the end, is that not only does Jesus intend to change your eternity, He also intends to change you. It is gloriously true that He will change your eternity. It is equally gloriously true that He intends to change His people. And this verse lays out the contrast. Those who love the darkness and love wickedness, they don't want to come to the light because their deeds will be exposed. But those who come and find themselves exposed before God and then welcomed in by that same loving God because of what His Son has accomplished, those same people will then walk in the light as He is in the light And as they walk in the light, it will be seen that their deeds are carried out in God. Yes, Jesus will change your eternity. And when that happens, He will also change you. Let's pray.